So, yes, as Steve was saying, we've come to the end of this, uh, this series that we've been doing um, on spiritual renewal, looking into the book of Ezekiel. Um, if you like, new life from what was previously dead. And we've been looking at selected passages from, from Ezekiel, the prophet. And, and today we've come to a fairly well-known vision that he has right near the end of his book, or his, his vision, his prophecy, and it's given to him um, right at the end, and it's part of a kind of wider section on sort of renewal of the temple and of the, of the land and of the city of Jerusalem, a vision that he has. And I'm going to, I'm going to um, using the kind of well-known uh, sporting analogy, which is a cliche, a wonderful cliche, I'm going to enjoy that today. And I don't know if anybody saw the shocker of a football match or saw the highlights last weekend when Liverpool beat Manchester United 7-0. Now, a score like that, I mean, some of you will be utterly indifferent to this kind of thing. But let me tell you, a score like that in, when you've got more or less matched, fairly well-matched sides, it just shouldn't happen. It should never happen, a score like that. And uh, it, was, um, it was a shocker. And I think both sides were equally, both lots of supporters were equally shocked, to be honest. And I'm going to use it because... Um, the, the, game, the, the game of two halves cliche often comes up with football. And, and this was very much a game of two halves, this football match, because the first half was relatively, relatively uneventful. There was a goal right at the end. But when you look back, you saw the signs of what was to come after half-time. And then in, after half-time, Liverpool put six goals past Manchester United, which was absolutely shocking. And this talk follows that trajectory in the sense that the really surprising stuff comes in what I'm talking about, we'll be describing as the second half. The first half, if you like, is looking at the passage more from what someone like Ezekiel and his people, his Jewish people, would have seen in his prophecy as they understood things, the revelation of God that they were familiar with. And the second half is much more what we as Christians in our, it has to be said, privileged, amazingly privileged situation can see with the the revelation that we've had, you know, the New Testament documents and the whole account of Jesus coming into coming to our world. So the background, some of the background now, so we're kind of in the first half. The background, what all this probably meant to God's people and people like Ezekiel. Well, the first thing to say is that um, for him, um, this restoration and renewal would have probably meant a, a physical return from exile. The whole of his book is written in this period of exile when, when the people have been taken from um, Israel into captivity in Babylon. And that's his vantage point. Some people were left behind, but a lot of the, the kind of the intelligentsia, if you like, and the civil servants and so on were all taken off into, into exile and captivity. And Ezekiel's been getting all these revelations in Babylon itself. So he would have been imagining a restoration and renewal that would have meant a physical return from exile with a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. It had to be about a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem because for them it was all about God's presence once more being there in the temple in Jerusalem. And last time that, as it were, God's hand had lifted Ezekiel up in a vision of renewal, was in the strange kind of dreamlike account that we heard about last week with the skeletons, you know, the valley of skeletons that came back to life. 
And that's what we were looking at a week ago. And um, that was God's resurrection power, if you like, being revealed at that time. And it must have seemed to Ezekiel, when he had that vision of the valley of the bones coming to life, it must have seemed that if God could do that, there would be no problem for God restoring Jerusalem and the temple and being there himself. And why is the temple so important to them? Um, and because, you know, speaking personally, as, I, as I, I have to admit that for me, I can sort of take or leave the temple. But that's because I'm a Christian and I have the kind of revelation that we have, as Christians have. But to, to Jewish people, the temple was, it wasn't just that it was the place where they went to worship God. It was far, far more than that because it was where God's presence was manifested. It was the only place really, that they had kind of week in, week out, where God's presence would be manifested. So without God's presence, without the temple, and without God's presence, it was as though God had left them utterly. It wasn't just that God wasn't in the temple anymore. It was as though God had gone. So you couldn't imagine a greater catastrophe to, to those people. And that's the kind of background that he is prophesying into. So we have this river of renewal, or this river of life that represents new life and renewal, which is today's passage, which we will be coming to in a few minutes. And as I say, it's, a, it's the last part of what is almost like a kind of, kind of virtual reality tour that, that he's taken on, Ezekiel. He sees this vision of a new city and the temple and the river flowing out of the temple and through the land. And he almost, he has a virtual reality guide to take him on this trip. And, and the guide is a mysterious character of incredibly few words, a sort of mute guide, really, but he has a measuring rod, and he shows Ezekiel what he needs to see. And we're going to be thinking as much about the temple part of it, although it's not strictly in our passage, but the temple can't be separated from the river that we're going to be hearing the passage from in a moment, because... Because the river flows out of the temple, and you can't have one without the other. And in many ways, the river is the kind of the outworking of this vision of a new temple that Ezekiel gets. So let's have the reading now. So the man, this is the, the man, the guide, with the measuring rod, brought me back to the, the entrance of the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple towards the east. For the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside of the outer gate facing east, and the water was flowing from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and then led me through water that was at this stage ankle deep. This is really weird the way it's appearing, isn't it? He had measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee-deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, and now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. He asked me, this is a rare utterance from him actually, son of man, do you see this? And then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. 
And he said to me, this water flows towards the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah, where it enters the sea. When it empties into the sea, the water there becomes fresh. And this is because it's emptying into the Dead Sea. And this is the miracle that it's making the Dead Sea habitable. So swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There'll be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So, so where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from an Engedi to an Eglime, and there will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Great Sea, which is the Mediterranean. But the swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They'll be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they'll bear because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. So this is this wonderful vision of this healing river, this water that brings life, new life. And the river is a kind of wonderful metaphor, isn't it, for what the vision of a new temple means in, in practice, how it kind of works itself out. Because a new temple will bring the chance of new life through the restored presence of God. And the river represents what flows from the restored presence. God is with his people again in this vision. They are with their God. And once again in the land that he promised them. And looking at the wider background, behind all of this, there's a reminder here, of course, isn't there, of the, the river flowing from the, the Garden of Eden. If you remember that, there was a river there described right back in Genesis chapter 2. And I'm quoting, The Lord had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he'd formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed through Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters and so on. And of course, that world as God had intended it was broken and violated by, by what we call the fall. And it came under God's judgment and, and curse. And the garden and river we see in Genesis 2 could no longer be the same after that. But Ezekiel gets this vision of restoration that he tells us about, um, of a life-giving river that brings new life. And it, may, must have, it must have made him and his, his people, his hearers, think of Eden and of that curse being lifted and creation being restored to what God had always meant it to be. It's this vision of restoration and, and there is something of Eden, something Edenic um, about this, isn't there? This, this description. Um, the trees it gives life to, they fruit every month. And a per perennial in leaf, this is the trees in Ezekiel's prophecy. And they have healing properties. There's something that must have made him think of Eden there, definitely. And... The river flows into the Dead Sea and it brings this wonderful new life where if you've been to the Dead Sea, you'll know that that just doesn't happen um, in reality. So that's a hint, isn't it, that there's something, there's something, some deeper metaphorical meaning going on here. 
It seems to be transforming it into a, te a sea teeming with fish, like the Mediterranean. And I suppose this is a description of what the restored land will also become, because the river flows out from the temple through the land as well. And the most important thing about the river here is its source, because it comes straight from the presence of God. This is a river that just comes from God. God will be back in his sanctuary, in his temple, but he won't be confined there simply accepting sacrifices and praises. The flow of benefit goes in the opposite direction. He is sending this river out and blessing, blessing the world. And that's an amazing, wonderful picture, isn't it, of the God who wants to bless, whose inclination is to bless. Through his restored presence in his temple, the land that he gave his people, Israel, once again becomes a place of blessing and life and food and health. It's hard for us to, it's hard for us to appreciate that because we as Christians aren't so bound up in the idea of God's presence only being there in the temple and God only being there in a particular place or particular land. And I was thinking of, as a way of trying to understand that a bit better, maybe thinking as an analogy, in some ways, of, the, of this yearning of wanting to be in a land that's blessed, of thinking of the economic migrants who, who fetch up on the shores of France and risk everything to cross over to the UK. Because like every human being, what are they seeking? Well, they're aspiring to live in a land where there is blessing and life and food and health, and they're fleeing a land which to them might seem to be cursed, and they dream of a world in which this, this plenty would be possible. As I say, it's not a true analogy, but it just gives us an aid, maybe, to understanding Ezekiel's imagery of this land which is blessed by the river and Israel's yearning to be back in that land. Now, I said it was a talk in, kind of a talk in two halves, like that Liverpool-Manchester United match, and we're almost at half-time. We're almost at half-time now. And what we got in the first half should maybe have been a warning to Manchester United of what was to come, because some of their players were out of position, some of them weren't concentrating, and sure enough, right at the end of the first half, there was a goal. There was a goal scored, and when you look back afterwards, you could see that all the signs of the earth-shattering events of the second half, you don't look convinced, the earth-shattering events were there in the first half. Okay, but you get, the, you get the picture of it. The goal just before half-time. We're at that point now. We're at the point of the goal just before half-time. At this stage of the game, we've seen a bit about the meaning of the river of renewal, as it would have revealed itself through a Jewish prophet to his own people, if they're listening. Of course, they weren't always listening. But this meaning points to something that is much more universal, and that's kind of revealed in the second half. Half time is over. Now you've been off, got yourself a pint, a hot dog, whatever, and second half is about to begin with those earth-shattering results. And it's an unusual second half because it's much quicker than the first half. Now, I would say this, but the deepest, 
the deepest and richest interpretation of the river of life has to be the Christian one. And I would say that, I suppose, wouldn't I? But that's what the second half is all about. This is sometimes, in, in kind of academic circles, I can reveal to you that this is, this is sometimes called biblical theology. And people do PhDs and write books on biblical theology. And that's just really the, the whole study of integrating the Bible and bringing understanding, allowing the Old Testament to be interpreted by the New Testament and so on. And that's a whole discipline. And we do that all the time as Christians, don't we? We, we look at the Old Testament and we see it through the lens of, of the Gospels and so on. So that's kind of what we're going to do now. Um, I said earlier that we can't separate the river of life from this vision of a new temple because the river flows out of this temple and they go together. Did Ezekiel think he was seeing a literal blueprint, though, for a new temple? It's a good question, isn't it? Um, and I would say there isn't enough detail in his vision. So that, and in fact, when they did build the next temple, the second temple, during Jesus' time, Herod's temple, it, it didn't really look like the, the vision that Ezekiel had been having. Inevitably, it was different to what Ezekiel had seen because he didn't give them an architect's drawing. Um, and there's no instruction or imperative from God in Ezekiel's time to go ahead and actually build the temple. And you contrast that with the instructions that Israel had to build the tabernacle, if you remember, in the wilderness, and then the first temple, Solomon's temple, where there were masses and masses of instructions, and they were told to get on and do it. Nothing like that with Ezekiel. Um, in literal material terms, these, I think these are visions of something that would, would never actually happen. It wasn't literally materially going to happen. Ezekiel's vision of this restored temple and the river of life must have pointed to something different, maybe something more radical and something wider. And what it points to from our Christian perspective is all to do with where God lives, whether or not God, God will allow people access to him, and if so, how? I think that's what it's all wrapped up in. In fact, even before we get to the New Testament, staying in the Old Testament, Old Testament itself, we do get a more kind of fleshed-out picture of where God dwells and access to God, and it's not, not confined to the temple, actually. The reality that God will never be tied to a single building came out even in the dedication to the first temple, Solomon's temple, but people forgot about it. And Solomon said, just going to remind you of what Solomon himself said, but will God really dwell on earth, he asked? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less than this temple I have built? So even Solomon recognized that he wasn't going to contain God in this temple that he was building. And then Isaiah, another of the major prophets, talks about two types of dwelling, two types of dwelling place for God. I live in a high and holy place, Isaiah says, as revealed to him by God. God lives in a high and holy place, like a temple, but I also live with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. So a contrite, humble heart and spirit 
can be the temple in which God lives. That's also a reminder, isn't it, of, the, of Psalm 51, which was the psalm which we were using when we said our confession a few minutes ago. A broken and contrite heart can be the true sacrifice God will not despise. And if we bring those two prophets together, Ezekiel and Isaiah, just bring them together, visions of God's temple and where it can be found seem to include something more personal. They seem to include something more personal than God only living in a physical temple building. And that's legitimate Old Testament imagery before we even move to the New Testament. It's not that God didn't live in the temple, wasn't there in the temple. Solomon really did receive instructions from God to build this temple, but the mistake was to tie God down and to limit God to the temple. And just to remind you why we're looking at all of this, why we're going through all of this, because we're trying to kind of flesh out the meaning for us in this river of life, this vision of the river of life flowing from the new temple in Ezekiel's vision. So now we just need to look at the New Testament, a few bits. Jesus, if you remember, Jesus attacked the temple of his day, didn't he? He condemned the way it was being used, especially by the, the authorities. He cleansed the commercial system. But he was also prophesying that the whole edifice of the temple would be destroyed. And this is what led to his arrest and execution. I mean, he's also talking about his own body being destroyed and being raised. But people arrested him because they understood him to be talking entirely about the temple. But the most radical way that he, Jesus, pointed to himself as the Jew temple um, is what really comes out. He points to himself as the true temple. And there are three ways and just three quick examples I'm going to give you here. The paralyzed man. Remember that paralyzed man who is lowered down through the roof by his friends. And Jesus offers him forgiveness directly um, to him and forgives him his sins in and through himself. And there's nothing about this man and other people having to go through the temple system to receive forgiveness. Um, obviously, forgiveness through the temple system was only possible ultimately, wasn't it? Because God was there in the temple. But Jesus is offering this forgiveness in himself without them having to go to the temple. So the implication is that he's doing the forgiving work that only God can do. So Jesus himself is the true temple. The woman at the well in John chapter 4, Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus himself offers her streams of living water. And he says these will be flowing from the hearts of people who would believe in him. Even to a Samaritan cut off from the... Because they, the Samaritans, as you'll know, were completely cut off from the Jerusalem temple. But it didn't matter. And that's probably these streams of living water are probably a reference to, to the water that Ezekiel saw, and maybe Eden as well. And then in the same conversation with this, this um, Samaritan lady at the well, Jesus implies that there will be a time soon when it's going to be possible for Jews and Samaritans, in other words, everybody, to approach God and worship him in spirit and in truth through Jesus himself, doing away with the need for any physical building anywhere. So his identity trumps 
any physical building. Jesus' identity trumps any physical building. And we shouldn't be surprised, should we, that Jesus pointed to himself as the true temple. Because in Jesus, we see the perfection of God's holiness and beauty in physical form. He dwelt among us, which means he tabernacled among us, full of grace and truth. Okay, we're thinking about where God lives, whether or not God will allow people access to him, and if so, how? And does it involve a temple? And we've seen that Jesus claims to be that temple in his own body, a temple of God that's available to all. And then this comes out in the letter to the Hebrews as well. Goes into it in great, great depth, actually. Hebrews, again, doesn't condemn or contradict what God had once provided through the original temple. And it doesn't belittle what Ezekiel describes. But it explains how in Jesus we have everything that the temple signified, including everything that Ezekiel saw in his vision. And what Hebrews does claim is that now, through Jesus, we have access to a kind of greater reality than what was available before. It says, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. You have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. We have an altar, uh, talking about Jesus. All that is through the work of Jesus, the true temple. No wonder he says in John chapter 7 of himself, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And then, of course, we've got possibly the strongest reference to Ezekiel's river in the New Testament, which is in the book of Revelation. And there, the river of life is part of the city of God. It's just there. And we'll dwell with God in this city because no longer will there be any curse. And there'll be no need for God to visit a temple or live in a temple that we've made for him because there'll be no need for a temple or any kind of altar. God will be there. So the river in that city will flow from the, from the throne of God right down through the high street, which is kind of like a boulevard in some wonderful, you know, imagine a wonderful European city with a boulevard, and we've got a river flowing down through it. Um, and the trees are there too, these trees that Ezekiel sees in his prophecy, on both sides of the river, and now their leaves are for the healing of the nations, not just for Israel, but they're for everybody's healing. So, coming towards the end, God's people, in summary, craved his presence, but only one way to be in that presence, there was only one way, and that was through the temple. We, in contrast, can now be in God's presence without being in a building at any time. And it's not a right, it's not something we've earned, but it's all through God's gracious decision that it will be this way. And God's presence brings life new life and restoration. And this is what Ezekiel sees dimly through that glass. So just to finish, I want two things for us to take away on top of everything I've said. First, we have to remember that we have this awesome God that we worship. And I think one of the great things about a book like Ezekiel is that it reminds us that God is a great and holy, awesome God. And when Ezekiel 
even sees the representation of the glory of God, he falls on his face. That happens right back in chapter 1. And it's true that we know as Christians that we can approach God, and that's what Hebrews talks about a lot, as our Father, see the Lord's Prayer. But seeing it from Ezekiel's perspective helps us appreciate appreciate that we can see God and approach God as Dad, Abba. And it all helps us to remember who we are worshipping in his approachable majesty. Holding that balance helps us appreciate the miracle of God's availability, the miracle of Jesus coming to live among us. The first thing, so that's the first thing, his approachable majesty. We have access to it. The second, the temple imagery that describes Jesus, Jesus being the new temple, also applies to us, we who are in Jesus. Paul writes to the Ephesians and he says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So we are also temples now. Peter uses that language. And remember, Paul, when he's writing to Corinth, says, remember that your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And the temple was this place where the glory of God would dwell and be visible. And Paul reminds us, he says, remember to honor and glorify God with your body. Well, we can only be called to be temples of the Holy Spirit because of this new life that we have in Jesus, born again into new life, where previously there was death. That's the wider Christian understanding of Ezekiel's river of life that flows from God. Let's pray. Lord, help us to, even at this slumber-inducing time on a Sunday afternoon, understand that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. And as we go away and as we reflect on this truth this week, Fill us with your spirit and fill us with, with fresh excitement and fresh life as we realize that that beautiful vision that you gave Ezekiel pointed to something that we are in this privileged position of being able to see more fully and understand more deeply. Amen. Band are going to come back up now and we're going to respond with, with two songs and Sue has chosen two songs that reflect that approachable majesty of God. The first song reflects the, if you like, the approachable side of our God. And the second song will help us to dwell on his majesty. And of course, the song we sang earlier, Meekness and Majesty, also reflected something of those ideas. Okay, Sue.